Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 136 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is You Survived, Now What? An interview with Sam McLaren Fahey. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So, Matt, we named this episode You Survived, Now What? because that's the name of Sam McLaren Fahey's podcast. And Sam, who is suffering from chronic Lyme disease, decided that she's going to make a broad presentation of the experiences that she has had as someone who has had to deal with a chronic Lyme disease experience. And we became a big fan of hers because she has a storytelling podcast, very much like ours, but presents this challenge very, very differently. And we enjoyed interviewing her for a lot of different reasons, the most important of which is because she's a podcaster and a brilliant storyteller, it was a really easy podcast for us. Which there were many things that stood out about Sam's Lyme journey for me. The first of which she went from being able to walk 12 miles or more a day to barely being able to walk up the stairs without losing her breath. Another story she used to describe her brain fog and how cognitively impaired she was is she was making herself eggs and used her hands instead of a spatula to flip the eggs and burned her hand. Another really interesting component about Sam's Lyme journey is that she really suffers from severe inflammation like many of us with chronic Lyme. And she had great success using immunotherapies to treat the inflammation. And finally, another really interesting part about her journey is she got herself into Lyme remission. Then she got diagnosed with COVID and was sick. Some of her Lyme symptoms came back with some light treatment. She was able to get herself in a much better position again and have a very great quality of life with her husband and her family. So Matt, I'm really excited to introduce to our community another one of the chronic Lyme disease warriors who is giving back to the community in so many different ways, most importantly with her brilliant podcast, You Survived, Now What? Hey, Sam McLaren Fahey, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rich. Thank you so much for having me. We're really blessed to have you. We've been a big fan of yours for a long, long time. And of course, as a fellow podcaster, we're really excited to have you on. And uh, But before I get into too much of that, because we are going to talk about your transformation, we want to talk about your background. So Sam, can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, so I am Sam McLaren Fahey. I am 31. Uh, I was actually born in England. My whole family's from England. We moved to the U.S. when I was about six, um, and I live in Michigan. So I'm about 45 minutes north of Detroit. Uh, I have a background in education. I've, I've always wanted to work in nonprofits. So uh, right now, my day job, uh, I work with refugees from the Middle East um, in assisting them in getting their citizenship and getting uh, assimilated to the United States. So Sam, when did your Lyme disease symptoms begin in your view? Looking back at now your journey, when do you think these uh, symptoms began to develop? It's a really, it's just so convoluted. It's, it's very hard to kind of discern when they really started. Um, the real downfall started in 2014, but I've essentially been sick since birth. I've been sick my entire life. Um, I was diagnosed with celiac disease at 22. Um, I ended up having to have my thyroid removed at 24. And then um, in 2014, I moved into a house, a very old house that had very high levels of mold. Um, and that's when things really took a turn. So um, looking back, you know, I don't know if like my gluten intolerance was Lyme disease and it wasn't celiac disease or um, if, if, you know, my joint swelling, my joint pain from, from childhood that's associated now with the celiac is actually Lyme disease or, 
you know, my struggles with my thyroid, which, which disease that was connected to. And, um, it's hard because those things kind of all overlap. Um, so there's no definitive date, right? I don't have any memory of getting bit by a tick or, or seeing a tick. So, um, I, I could have gotten it, you know, before, before 2014. And my doctor also told me like, I could have had this since childhood and it was just kind of reemerged, um, once I had that introduction into the mold as well. So now, Sam, you said that you were born in the UK and you moved here when you were six. Has, um, do either of your parents show what, what you would consider symptoms of Lyme disease? No. So um, Lyme disease isn't really, it wasn't something known, right? When I was growing up, um, it wasn't known in the UK. It wasn't, I mean, at least to us, it wasn't really talked about in Michigan that much. So I don't have memories of, you know, when you come in from out of the woods, you check yourself for ticks. Um, but neither of them have, have had symptoms. I know, like my parents both kind of have a, a slight gluten intolerance, um, but, you know, they haven't had to go on a gluten-free diet. It hasn't really changed their lives. So, no, I, I just seem to be the, the wonder child that got all of the illnesses. <laughs> right. So do you think it's possible that you may have been, uh, you may have gotten your Lyme disease congenitally? Um, I don't think so. I, I mean, my, my family hasn't been tested for it, um, but a lot of my symptoms when I was really young were more food allergy symptoms. Um, and then it, it moved into kind of that joint pain, that joint swelling um, that, that really took off. Um, but my parents didn't really, they didn't have symptoms, so they've, they've never been tested. It's just not something that we've really, we've really considered. Now, of course, now your parents may have Lyme disease. Your mom in particular may have Lyme disease, but she may have a strong immune system and she just may be managing it. And it, it is possible that you could have, you could have suffered the, uh, the disease as a consequence of it being passed on to you from your mom congenitally. Yeah. And it's something that you have considered, but of course, your mom not being symptomatic is not something your family has ever tried to explore. Yeah, we've been, we've, Rather than kind of researching where all these things have come from, we've still just been kind of tackling the issue itself. Um, and so we haven't really gone back and kind of pinpointed dates or pinpointed symptoms or times or things like that. So now you've been suffering from these symptoms since you're a child. Talk about what you were pursuing and dreaming about as a child and how these symptoms as they developed interfered with the pursuit of your dreams. It's kind of a hard question because I'm very stubborn. And so I've, I've never really tell. let anything um, stop me, which it's, that's a hard thing to say, right? Because it's, it's not like it's a mental thing, right? You can't just tell somebody, oh, just kind of suck it up. Like that's not a thing. Um, but for me, it was because it was so much a part of my life and I didn't know any different. Um, I kind of just kept going forward with it. So like, for instance, in high school, I really struggled with, you know, if I ate breakfast before school, I was going to throw up when I got to school, right? I did not, I was so nauseous. I didn't feel well. Um, and so I just stopped eating before I went to school. And then lunchtime on like pizza day or Bosco stick day, right? I would get really sick after lunch. So then I would just not eat lunch. Um, and so I developed kind of just not really great coping mechanisms of, of going through that. And I mean, we had, you know, we'd talked to a couple different doctors of, you know, maybe something this could be, I had digestive issues and a lot of swelling, but you know, everyone just kind of chalked it up to, 
it's growing pains or, you know, it's, it's an eating disorder or, or whatever. Um, and then when I got into college, my, my freshman year, um, I had my first complex migraine and, uh, that it, it mimics a stroke. Um, so that morning was terrifying, right? Because we thought that I was actually having a stroke. I was three hours away from my mom, who's a physical therapist. So I called her and was slurring my speech and, and telling her my entire left side was numb and something was wrong. And um, of course I was 18. So she said, call 911. And I was like, no, an ambulance is so embarrassing. Like I'm in the dorms, right? So I'm like, I can't let everyone see me in an, in an ambulance. Um, so I, she finally convinced me to like get a friend to take me to the to urgent care. And, you know, they're running all the tests and they kept, after they kept me there for probably four or five hours, you know, the numbness started to wear off a little bit. And um, I was diagnosed with, with complex migraines. And for most of college, right, they told me just don't drink caffeine. So I somehow made it through college without any caffeine. Um, but they said, you know, if it happens more than once in six months, you know, just, just come back. And it happened, you know, six months later, and then four months later, and then three months later, and two months later. And by the time um, I was 22, I was having them about five days a week. Um, I was taking uh, anti-seizure steroids. I was taking hyd uh, hydrocodone every day. I was taking Imitrex every day, um, just kind of trying to, to cope. Um, and the reason why I got my celiac diagnosis was because I had applied for grad school, right? I was like, I don't care that I should be in the hospital five days a week. Like I'm going to grad school. And uh, I, it was actually a neurologist that said, you know, let's track your food. Let's track, you know, what's triggering this. And um, once I removed gluten, all of my symptoms essentially that I'd had my entire life stopped right? Like all my joint pain and swelling, the rashes, the hives, the migraines, um, the, the anxiety that I'd had, you know, all of that went away after the gluten. And I had this like sudden, I feel incredible and everything's, you know, I, I can't believe people live like this. And, um, and yeah, that's, I mean, I had about six months to a year of that before then everything kind of went the other way. So Sam, before we go forward with talking about 2014, I'd like to just revisit your childhood for another couple of uh, seconds. The, the first thing I would like you to talk to us about is what you knew about ticks and tick diseases between the time that you immigrated to the U.S. when you were six and the time that you had your Lyme diagnosis at 24. Absolutely nothing. I, I knew absolutely nothing. We were we were not campers, right? I'm very much an indoor person. Um, and so it just wasn't on our radar. It wasn't a conversation that we'd ever had. I mean, I have dogs. So the extent of my tick knowledge was if you find a tick on your dog, take it off. Like that, that was essentially it. I, I had no further knowledge of it than that. So now let's talk about your, um, your experience as a young person sort of rolling from illness to illness to illness. And so many of these symptoms seem to me to be classic Lyme symptoms. At any time between when you first started developing your symptoms, when you immigrated to the US when you were six, all the way the, until the time that you had received your Lyme disease diagnosis at 24, was Lyme even a consideration that was raised with you or your parents from any doctor that you treated with? 
So I went to a nutritionist um, when I was, let's see, it, that was probably like right at the end of 2014 going into 2015 when I really started to, to get very sick. Um, I had been to several different doctors and my, my biggest issue was, was my issue with food, right? My whole life, my biggest issue has been with food. So um, I, I went to a nutritionist and she said, you know, we're going to do this blood test to see what your sensitivities are and things like that. And then she said, if those all come back fine, we're going to test you for Lyme disease. And that was the first time anyone had ever mentioned that illness to me. It was the first time it had ever been a consideration. Um, and, but she wasn't uh, an MD. She couldn't order the, the Lyme test. And so I, you know, everything came back that I, I should be taking this Lyme test. I took it to my primary care doctor and, and it was denied. So I, I went another, well, almost three years before an actual test um, because doctors would not approve even me getting tested. Looking back, how does that make you feel that you had an opportunity for a diagnosis that could have occurred years before you finally got your diagnosis, but you weren't because you weren't able to get that uh, diagnosis because of a refusal of a doctor or because of Lyme bias. How do you feel about that now? I mean, uh, it's one of those things I try not to harbor emotions because, you know, I'm really the only one affected by it. Like that doctor still goes home and sleeps at night and it, it doesn't affect her. Um, but there's a lot of anger. Like I had a lot of anger that I had to work through with, with all of the doctors that I interacted with and kind of all the people around me, because, um, you know, when you're standing at the top of a building screaming, I'm, I'm sick, there's something wrong with me. And nobody believes that. And no one will even give you the opportunity to prove that, um, is it's incredibly angering and it's incredibly upsetting. And for me personally, because I'm a person that's very headstrong, I accomplish what I want to accomplish. I'm the one in charge of my life. I'm the one that gets things done. Um, to be in a position where there's literally nothing I could do or felt there was nothing I could do um, was, I mean, it was incredibly upsetting. So I want to explore one more thing with you. You said that you were the only one affected by this. Can you talk to us about whether that's really true? Meaning, yes, the doctor certainly went home and the doctor is living his or her life the way they were because um, they're not affected by their failure to diagnose you. But talk to us about how your symptoms affected your parents and your siblings and, and any of the romantic uh, and social uh, relationships you've developed over that time. Yeah, I think it was, it was a, an incredibly isolating experience. Um, I'm an only child and uh, my dad actually, in the, in the height of me really trying to figure out what this was, my dad was living over in England um, half the year and living here half the year. So he wasn't uh, really present for a lot of the physical part of it. And so he's very much like the joker. And so, you know, he was the one I'd go to for, for lightening my spirits, but um, I was engaged at the time. My husband and I got married in 2015. And so that was really in the height of, of all of this happening. And so that put a huge strain on us because, you know, we're young, we're, we're about to get married and, and I'm essentially going to work, coming home and going straight to bed. Like we don't have any time together. We don't go out together. You know, it's that, I mean, that really just takes a negative toll. And that, that was hard for a while. Um, my mom was really the kind of bulldog in my corner. Um, she was the one really, really pushing for, for, you know, she was the one who truly believed me and, and said, we're going to find this doctor. She's the one who found, um, the doctor that, that really helped me. But, um, 
even in that, that interim, that was, we still struggled, right? Because what do you do, right? This is new to me, but it's also, it's new to my parents. It's new to my husband. And, um, there's no way to really communicate. Like I, I feel that I'm dying. Like there's no way to actually express that and, and have people like fully understand it. So, um, they were there as much as they could be, but, um, I think I lost, you know, a lot of friendships through that. Um, because I, I couldn't, I just didn't have the energy. I didn't have the brain capacity to, to really cultivate relationships and that, you know, I couldn't go out, I couldn't do things. So, um, I mean, my closest friends that I've had for the longest time never went anywhere. They are still absolutely here, but, um, I think that did really affect kind of those peripheral friends, um, in that I, I kind of figured out who really belonged in my life. So Sam, talk to us more about when you were 24 and you got really sick with these really severe Lyme disease symptoms. So I had, I went to grad school in Washington, DC. Um, so I didn't have a car. So I was walking 10, 12, 15 miles a day, um, eating everything just fine. I mean, felt amazing. Like my hair was amazing, right? I just felt, <laughs> I felt really good. Um, and then I moved uh, probably... August of 2014, I was just finishing up school, getting ready to move back to Michigan. And uh, my hair just started falling out. I mean, just in clumps, like it was just handfuls and handfuls. And um, initially, you know, every, I had had my thyroid removed that previous December. So initially it was, this is hormonal, right? It's thyroid related, it's stress related. You're doing a big move, you're finishing school. Um, but we moved into this very old house in September. And then probably by December, um, I couldn't even walk to the mailbox without having to sit down, you know, having gone from walking 10 to 12 miles a day. And, um, it, it was fast. I mean, it was really fast that it happened and <clears throat> excuse me. And I couldn't eat food, right. Any food that went into my body came right back up. I, I and it wasn't like a specific type of food. It wasn't just gluten. It was wasn't just dairy. It was anything, right? Anything that went into my body came right back up. Um, and I started getting, you know, really bad brain fog. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I can say this now because it's no longer my job, but I drove, uh, a, an education van across the state. And I mean, I was running red lights. I was driving the wrong way down the street. Right. I, I, and it wasn't conscious, right. I remember, um, one day I was making an egg in a frying pan and just with my bare hands just went to flip it and, and absolutely burned myself because right. It didn't, my brain wasn't there to be like, pick up the spatula and do it. And, um, it was terrifying. You know, I could, I could think of a word I was trying to say and it would come out as a completely different word. And I would sit there and try to practice it. And, um, it, I felt like I was losing my mind and, and you know, by, I don't know, I'd say probably early the 2015, early the following year, um, I'd lost about 20 pounds just because I couldn't eat. And so I, you know, all my hair was gone. I had lost all this weight. You could see every bone in my body and um, I couldn't breathe without, you know, I, ju I just sounded very wheezy and out of breath. And um, yeah, I mean, the people around me, you know, say like, we didn't notice, you know, <laughs> you still looked great and you still had a smile on your face, but it was, it, to me, I was just like, I'm, I look like a walking corpse. Like, I don't know how anybody doesn't, doesn't see what's going on here. 
So Sam, clearly it wasn't just a food allergy or celiac disease like you thought it was the year before. So once you started having these crazy new symptoms, what were you doing? Were you going to doctors to see what really was wrong with you at this time? Yeah, I think I went through um, four different primary care doctors because, you know, I was just trying to find somebody to do initial testing. It was also really hard, too, because I, up until the age of 26, I was on my mom's insurance, which was a PPO, which kind of gave me uh, more access. And then when I turned 26 in the middle of this, I switched to an HMO through my job. And so I, I had to go through all those channels, right? I had to play the game. And... Um, I was just being denied left and right. And the problem was um, the first few doctors just kept saying, it's your thyroid. It's your body adjusting to not having your thyroid. That's all it is. And I had one doctor that said, you know, we won't even test you for anything for three years until after your surgery. Um, and then I had doctors who, you know, I went to allergists and the thing was they, I did, you know, 10 different allergy tests and it wasn't allergies, right? Because it was, it was an internal thing that was happening. Um, and so I just kept getting past kind of like specialist to specialist, like rather than going to a doctor who was looking at all of my symptoms as a whole. And so because I was going specialist to specialist, um, I, I wasn't getting any answers and it got to the point where I think, um, you know, you get so frustrated that when a doctor walks in the room, you're ready with your speech, but really you are just crying and screaming in their face and you look like a crazy person. Um, and so I, I was about 12 doctors in, um, most of them said it was anxiety. It was depression. You know, I needed therapy. Um, you know, because talking is why I can go from walking 12 miles a day to not being able to walk at all. Um, but my 12th doctor, was kind of the, uh, the, I'm calling it quits. I'm done with this, with this journey because um, it was a gastroenterologist and uh, I went in and explained, you know, everything that was going on. And I had done some research. And so I had thought, you know, I have a, um, a what's the word I'm looking for? I'm a host to what? What's the word I'm looking for? There's something like in my gut that's, you know, feeding off of me or, or there's- Oh, um, like a parasite? Parasite, thank you. So I was like, I, I think I have a parasite. I think I have, um, you know, bacterial infection. I think there's something like this going on. And he looked at me with, you know, his like quotation, air quotations and said, that's a holistic answer. Like we, that's not a thing. Um, and so, you know, I was already kind of irritated. And then the- um, the, Should have fired him right at that time. I yeah, and the thing <laughs> was, I was so exhausted that it was just like I didn't even have the energy to fight anymore. And I had uh, the anesthesiologist came in, and she took my weight, and she went, "Wow, you're really." Cause I mean, I'm five five. I think I was about ninety five pounds. Um, and she said, "Wow, you're you're really small." And I said, "That's why I'm here, right? I'm I'm here to find out why I can't eat food and." Um, she said, well, I don't understand. Why don't you just eat potatoes? And I said, well, and I explained to her the last time I tried a spoonful of potato, I ended up writhing in pain on the bathroom floor for about 12 hours. And she looked me dead in the face and said, babies can eat potatoes. And I was like, I'm done. I'm done with this. Right. I'm not, I'm, I don't trust the medical field. Right. You guys are just here to tell me I'm crazy and, and I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. And you know, I, I was there, so I went through the procedure. Um, 
But after that, I, I took about four months and I was just kind of like this. I mean, if this, whatever this is, takes me, it takes me, I'm, I'm, I'm done pursuing this because it's hurting me more than it's helping me. Um, and yeah, I did that for about four months. So Sam, as, as a tip for people that are at that point in their journey right now that are listening to this podcast, would you recommend that if a doctor treats them the way that you were treated and basically says a baby can eat potatoes, why can't you, or just belittles you or treat you that way, that they just keep moving on to another doctor and keep trying to find a doctor that can help them to shortcut their diagnostic journey? Yeah, absolutely. And that, it, that's hard, right? Because in that moment, you just feel so helpless and so weak. And I mean, through this journey, I think the best thing that I've gained is what a strong advocate I am for myself now. Like in any situation, if there's something that I need or that needs to happen or something that I don't appreciate or don't like, like I will, I will stand up for myself. Um, but absolutely, because you, you will find someone. And I think the hardest thing for me was that when this happened, I didn't have undiagnosed in my vocabulary. I didn't know that that was a thing, right? I just knew that I felt terrible and I didn't know what to, what to look for. Um, and so I think had I gone online and, and had that word in my vocabulary and been able to search doctors, you know, who treat people who are undiagnosed or who are functional medicine or, or more holistic, um, I think I would have, I would have come to my conclusion earlier, right? It wouldn't have taken 13 doctors to find my, my final one. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Like this is why I'm doing this podcast and, and why I do what I do is that I, I want people to know that, you know, yes, medical professionals have gone to school and they know a lot of stuff, but like they are human and you are the only person that knows your body. And if you know something is wrong, you just have to keep fighting for yourself as exhausting as it is. Like you will find someone who will fight in your corner. So Sam, after all of these horrible doctors, talk to us about how you finally got your Lyme diagnosis. Uh, it was actually from, well, it, the, even that took another, it took another year. Um, so I went uh, to this doctor in the summer of 2015 and my mom found this doctor. So she had gotten to the point, I, I had called my mom because I had walked out of my house to go and get the mail and I had collapsed, right? It just completely collapsed. My legs stopped working. I couldn't move. I'm just sitting on the ground and like my breathing was really labored and it just, everything just hurt. And I, I literally felt like if I had just closed my eyes, I wouldn't have woken up again. Like that, I, I literally felt my body shutting down. And I called my mom. That was in that like four month period. And I called my mom and I told like, what can you imagine like being a mom and answering the phone? And I was literally just like, I, I'm dying. Like, I, I, I don't know how else to explain this. I have to figure this out because I'm not going to live to see 30. Like that was, that was what I told her. Um, and so she works in a hospital, she's a physical therapist and like a lunatic, she ran around the hospital and talked to every single person in that building. She said, this is my, these are my daughter's symptoms. Can you help her? And people would say, no, these are my daughter's symptoms. Can you help her? No. And she finally got to someone who said, you know, my, my family member went to this doctor, um, maybe, maybe check in with them. And, uh, I did, I called them. She was uh, an, an internal med or a, excuse me, a functional medicine doctor. 
And I remember going into her office and, you know, doing the spiel, right? She says, hi, I don't let her get another word out. I say, this is what's going on. If you can't help me, I'm leaving. And uh, she was the first person. She said, I don't know what's wrong with you, but we're going to figure it out and I will help you. And she was the first person that was even kind enough just to say that. And, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sam, I think that's a really important statement you just made that this doctor actually partnered with you rather than just told you you're crazy or just eat more or it's your thyroid. This doctor actually wanted to work with you to figure out the root cause and no doctor before this actually wanted to do that with you. No, and I, that's the one thing that I still don't fully understand about the medical world is that um, she treated me like like she obviously recognized that I know my body, right. And I know what's wrong or, or, or when things are, are not working the way that they're supposed to do. And that it really is a tandem thing. It's, it's not just, you know, a doctor is going to, going to do all of this work, right. It's really meant to be done together because you know yourself better than this doctor does. And that doctor knows the medical stuff better than you do. Um, and so she was really the first one that did it. It, it felt like I had a partner in this, um, but it still took, because by the time I got to her, I had pneumonia and it was bad. I had a horrible staph infection. And um, so it really just became kind of symptom treating for the first couple of months. Cause she told me, had I not come to her or had somebody not done this testing, I probably wouldn't have lasted much longer with those infections. Um, and so it was about a year. I was in, you know, I was doing IV nutrients, IV medications, um, really just kind of treating those symptoms, which I started to feel a lot better, but I still couldn't eat anything. I was still having a lot of other issues. Um, so it, it did, it took a full year for me to actually, for her to do the, the test for Lyme and for that to come back positive. So Sam, I just want to encourage everybody listening to this podcast to go check you out on, on your TikTok, because that's where I first really had my impressionable, uh, view of you and, and how powerful your story is and how powerful you are in spreading the message. You have a ton of videos showing what it's like to live with chronic Lyme. And there's one video in particular of you walking up the stairs and literally after the first few steps, you're on your knees and then you're sitting and you can't move. And I know so many of us can relate to that, but it's so hard to describe that to other people. And I think you just very beautifully depicted the reality of Lyme disease on your, on your TikTok account. So I just want to encourage everybody to go check that out. But so essentially now you're really just treating your symptoms for a year and keeping yourself alive. At what point did your functional doctor and you together land on Lyme disease and find the real root cause of all your problems? So I was diagnosed with Lyme disease in uh, June of 2016. So I had been going there for almost a year and I'd started there in August of 2015. And, um, she was wonderful, right? Another really great example of, of what a stand-up medical professional does. She says, I am not the best person to treat Lyme disease. I'm sending you to another specialist, right? She could have continued. I, she wasn't under um, uh, my health insurance. I was paying her out of pocket, like I'm sure a lot of, a lot of Lyme warriors do. Um, and so she didn't say, oh, keep coming here, right? We'll take your money. She said, no, this person is going to be the one that will take, continue your journey for you. Um, and so I started seeing a, a Lyme specialist after that. But Sam, what, what led your doctor to actually think Lyme and test for Lyme and get you that diagnosis before you went to this Lyme specialist? 
it was literally all that was left. I had been tested for absolutely everything. I, I was doing blood work every four to six weeks. And I mean, they were taking like 24 to 32 vials of my blood every single time. It became kind of a running joke at the lab because people would all gather around to be like, wow, like, <laughs> look at all this blood coming out of you. Um, and so it, the last tests that I did, I did two tests together. The first was like a mold toxicity to see the mold levels in my body. And then the next one was the Lyme disease. Um, the mold came back kind of high. Um, but the Lyme disease was for sure positive, which was why, um, why she sent me on. But those, I mean, we had exhausted every other avenue of it. So now let's talk about when you now are seeing this Lyme literate doctor or this Lyme specialist, what that experience was like and what your treatment protocol was finally to treat your Lyme disease. Um, I don't even think I have words to describe it. It was like, I, everything that I had been waiting for, right, all in one person right there. I, I mean, she sat me down and in that initial, because I had done blood work before my initial um, appointment with her. And in that initial appointment, she actually diagnosed me also with chronic inflammatory response syndrome um, because of my Lyme and because of my exposure to mold. Um, and those symptoms were, were kind of leading the charge at that moment. And it was she was going down the list of symptoms and it was things, you know, like eye pain. And it was like, I had been to the eye doctor six months ago complaining about how badly my eyes hurt. And they just, oh, you're just looking at the computer too long or, you know, that, that standard thing. And so it was like everything that I had experienced, everything that I was feeling, even the symptoms that I didn't associate, even the things that I didn't really think were connected here she is just showing me a list of all of these things and just saying like, you know, you are diagnosed this, you have all of these things. And it was, I, I don't have words for it. I mean, it's, it's just such a, a crazy feeling to be told for so long that all of this is in your head, right. To know that it's not. And then to be sitting in front of a person who not only says that, it's, it, this is what is going on, but then we'll give you like a physical list of, you know, this is, this is proof. This is real. It was, it was incredible. So Sam, talk to us about the treatment you received over this two to three year window, where this ultimately led to your remission in about 2019. Yeah. So up front, it was kind of hard because I had such bad inflammation from the, the SIRS that um, my doctor was actually really hesitant to start me on antibiotics. She thought my immune system was very overwhelmed with that, that if they introduced uh, something else to my immune system, it, it could kind of shut it down, right? It could kind of go into just like, just very overworked. Um, and so she continued that kind of treating those symptoms. And so I did um, LDA, LDI, like I did uh, try to build my, my food intolerances, trying to get just some of that inflammation down. And, and then, I'm sorry to, sorry yeah. to interrupt, Sam. Can you just describe what LDA and LDI are for our listeners, please? I wish that I could. I, <laughs> so the one thing that um, is different on my journey than a lot of the journeys that I've heard is that when people get this Lyme diagnosis, they just dive into the literature, right? They're like, what is this? I want to know everything about it. I was completely the opposite because I was so exhausted at that point that having a person say, 
I, I know what to do. I'm going to make the plan. I just handed it over and just took a breath. Right. So, um, she was giving me these treatments. I had no idea what they were. I didn't look them up because it was just like for the first time in so long, I didn't have to be leading the cart. Right. I, I could just kind of hand the reins over and um, so I, I took a step back for that couple of months. I just kind of said, do with me what you please. Um, and, and so I, I honestly don't know. I know that the treatments that I was doing was meant to, uh, it was meant to reduce my inflammation. And I know that it was meant to stop my body from essentially like attacking itself whenever I ate food. Um, but outside of that, I don't know the science behind what I was doing. Well, I don't think you give yourself enough credit, Sam, because you just act, I think, very accurately describe what your treatment was for, which was to decrease inflammation and help some of your symptoms before focusing on actually killing off the bacteria. So that was, that was a pretty good description. Yeah, thank you. Um, but I did, I only did that for a few months because I, I had been diagnosed in June. I went to her in July and started those, those treatments. And then in October, my inflammation just kind of took over and got my appendix and um, you know, that turned into kind of a mess. So I had to get my appendix taken out in October and I was on a lot of antibiotics from, from that and survived it. So at, at that point, my doctor said, okay, so your body can tolerate antibiotics. Um, let's get you started. And so I think I did like doxy and septin, um, initially. Were there any other treatment modalities that you did during this two to three year window that got you into remission? Um, so I did, I did like long-term, I did long-term antibiotics. I did three kind of like, I think it was like eight, six to eight months, um, stints of antibiotics, but heavy. I mean, I took that first eight months, I took 6,000 milligrams of antibiotics a day. Um, I was also taking, you know, a lot of antifungals. I was taking, uh, herbal antimicrobials. Um, but then I was also taking a lot of toxin binders. So a lot of activated charcoal, a lot of bentonite clay. Um, and then I was just sticking to eating rice. I ate rice for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 10 months, <laughs> nothing else in my diet, um, which is awful. And I, I don't wish that upon anybody. Um, but I did, I, I did that for about 10 months and then, um, I felt good, you know, I, I felt a lot better and then I came off and it, I just dipped right back down. Like I, I was working, um, did the same treatment again, the second time started the same treatment the third time. And, you know, my doctor kind of said, this isn't, this isn't working and, and wanted me to kind of prepare myself for this just being how I feel like this just being a standard, standard part of my life. And, uh, in let's see, October of 2018, she cut out the antibiotics and introduced rifampin. And then I was taking rifampin, uh, and the antimicrobials and antifungals for about, I don't know, about six months. And it was like, it's inst almost instant. I mean, I was on them for within like two or three months, I could walk up and down the stairs, you know, without the handrail, I could um, be on my feet for longer, I could talk without an inhaler. Um, and so that was kind of the turning point for me. And I think um, that that's a big part of it, right? By whatever's going on in my guts is kind of the biggest, the biggest symptom for me. So having like, you know, small intestine bacterial overgrowth is, is a very common thing for me. So I, 
I went on the rifampin and then what she did was have me on a diet where I only eat every four hours so that my body really has time to process the bacteria and, and get rid of it. So um, I've been, I've been only eating every four hours and then doing toxin binders in between meals uh, since then. I'm still doing that. So really, this is a very regimented protocol. You were using the LDA and the LDI to decrease your inflammation and, and bolster your immune system, a wide variety of combination antibiotics up until rifampin, which actually was your game changer antibiotic, and also taking antifungals and antimicrobials to really take a whole body approach with the toxin binders to eliminate all of the waste and the kill off of, of these viruses and bacteria. So here you are now, you get, you get into remission, right? It's the end of 2018, you're feeling good. And then what happens, right? You get COVID in the beginning of 2019. So yeah. <laughs> walk us through now, you know, what that's like. You're feeling good for a few months. You're finally thinking you're getting through this and you get hit with COVID and now your symptoms come back and how you sort of manage that over the last, I'd say eight months or so up until the present date. Yeah. So it was a, it was kind of a strange timeline. So, um, and I will add in my, in my previous things as well, I was also doing those hydrogen peroxide IVs. Um, which, which I think helped as well. Um, but I think that the best thing that I did was I moved out of that house, right? I moved, we actually built our house. So we moved into a house that I knew did not have molds. And I think that was a big part of the game changer for me was just completely removing molds from, from my um, environment. So yeah, I was officially classed as being in remission um, in March of 2019. It was the first time in this entire period that my inflammatory markers were in a normal range, which was an absolutely indescribable feeling. Um, and then I, I had a year about of, of feeling really good. So the beginning of 2020, I started noticing um, some of my gut swelling again. So I didn't attribute that to Lyme. It's, I attributed that more to that gut bacteria overgrowth. Um, and so, you know, I got put on the rifampin again for three more months right at the beginning. And, you know, we went into, went into shutdown. Um, and I only did it for three months rather than six months, which is what you're supposed to do. So I think I just kind of angered it by only doing three months um, because then it just kind of went crazy. Um, and uh, I looked like I was five months pregnant with the swelling. So I was really appreciative that I was home and not at work and having people question me every day about that. Um, but I had just started, I did a really heavy antibiotic. I don't remember what the name of it was, but I did a really heavy antibiotic for 10 days, um, just trying to, to kind of clear all the bacteria out of my system. And then I started on a probiotic regimen. And uh, yeah, right in there, my husband came home from work. He said, I don't feel well. And this was in July. So I said, okay, let's, let's go. I felt fine, but I said, let's go do this, this COVID test. And, you know, within a day I had the fever, I had the, you know, all the symptoms and everything. And it was an, an incredibly rough couple of weeks. I mean, we had very different symptoms. He got, you know, the breathing issues and, and that got really scary. Um, but mine was all digestive, right? Everything that ever happens to me is just in my guts. And so I had, I was throwing up probably every 10 minutes for, for two weeks. And I mean, it was horrendous. It was awful. Um, and I tested positive for COVID for almost five weeks, about five weeks. And, um, you know, my husband was cleared after two weeks, but, you know, my doctor said, because you have all this other stuff going on, it's, it's taking your body longer to fight it longer. After COVID, she said, you know, it's probably smart that we take a DNA test and just see where your line is right now because a trauma like that can trigger that and trigger a reemergence. And 
um, you know, my uh, two, I think two of my Lyme bacterias had, had spikes, not, not in the way that they had originally, but that my numbers were elevated. Um, so it had triggered kind of a, a flare up of it. Um, and so that's what I'm in the middle of now. I'm, I'm what, five months, four months down the road um, from COVID and I'm, I'm back on the antibiotics. I'm back on the rifampin, the antimicrobials and, and I'm back in the regiment. This time around, it's not, it's not what it was, right? I, I can walk, I'm, I'm feeling okay. I'm just a little bit tired, right? My, my levels aren't, near, aren't skyrocketing like they were previously. Um, but it, again, it's just another kink in the road because it's like, how long is this going to take, right? How, I don't know how many, you know, will, will this treatment work this time or, or will this progress? And so I'm, I'm just kind of in a weird stage of, of just unknown right now. Well, but Sam, you, you do have a treatment protocol that was successful. So you were able mm -hmm. to turn back to that and use yeah. that again to try to um, manage your symptoms. So let's look back at this journey now that you've, you've gone on and Give our listeners some insight into what types of things you'd recommend to shortcut their diagnostic journeys. What types of recommendations would you make so that they could shortcut their treatment journeys? So I think um, in terms of diagnostic, I think what I learned um, through this is that when you're looking for a doctor, just ask them on the phone. So when I was, I've moved a couple times and when I'm looking for a new primary care doctor, I'll call their office and I will ask the receptionist what is this doctor's familiarity with Lyme disease, right? Because if they say they don't have any familiarity or, or they don't know or, or things like that, um, I'm not gonna waste my time. I'm not gonna go in because it's not my job to educate somebody on my disease, right? So um, that's the first thing that I would do. If you're looking for doctors is to just call, just call and ask what are your protocols? What are, you know, I need to know these things um, before I invest my time, before I invest my money into them. Um, so that's, that's the number one. And then um, just looking for uh, references, right? So I got into a support group and I learned in the support group that every single person there was going to the same doctor as me. So had I, had I connected with that group earlier, I might've learned about that doctor earlier. Um, so I think just reaching out to the people in your community um, just to find those resources, right? Because I've learned it's a it's a huge community, unfortunately, but it's also a very small community, right? Everyone um, stays in contact with each other and there's so many groups and there's so many things available um, that finding a doctor through a trusted source like that, rather than just relying on doctors to have the knowledge is, is the best thing to do. Sam, when did you begin to now share with the world the challenges that you're facing? Because one of the things that we've learned from most of our guests is that there is some window of time when you're very private about the challenges that you're facing. So talk about when you were private and why you were private and what caused you to now pivot to become a part of the activist community uh, in the Lyme uh, disease world. Yeah, I think um, the first few years I was just in survival mode. So I wasn't in a position to help somebody else. I wasn't in a position to, to be that force for somebody else. I, I was just trying to get through every day. Um, and honestly, you know, I mean, with this illness, I was facing a lot of negativity, right? I, um, you know, it's, it's not a diagnosis that people know or that people understand. They don't think that it's that big of a deal. So um, I was, you know, when I got my diagnosis, I was very excited to share that with the people in my life. And, 
I was met with a lot of like, oh, that's no big deal or everybody has that or, you know what I mean? Um, I, and I, I either was met with that of just kind of brushing it off and it's not that big of a deal, which for my mental health was, was not a place where I wanted to be. Um, or I was met with the complete opposite of that. I remember going to a wedding and, you know, someone came up and said, oh, did you finally get your diagnosis? I said, I have Lyme disease. And she said, oh my gosh, no, my neighbor had that and her treatment wouldn't work. So she ended up taking her own life. And I was just like, okay, like that, that's not, it's just, it wasn't the responses that I was getting from people were not helping me mentally. And so I really just kept everything private. I just kept everything that I was going through to myself. Um, it kept a smile on my face, right? There's so many people today that you were sick. I, I can't believe it. You were so happy. You were, you know, um, I put on a good front. Um, but I, my moment of coming out and sharing that was after I was in remission because I felt safe. I felt like even if people come to me and say, your treatments aren't going to work or, or anything like that, I already know that I'm in a, a place physically and mentally that whatever is said to me or comes my way, I can handle it at this point. And I chose my 30th birthday to share my story publicly um, because, because of that phone call to my mom, because I remember thinking in that moment, I'm never going to turn 30, right? Like I, I, I'm not going to make it. And so that was a huge benchmark date for me. Um, and so I did, I, and I, I kind of expected, you know, some pushback. I expected some negativity and I mean, it was insane. The, the positivity and just the overwhelming support that I had from that. And that really boosted me into like, oh, I want to be in this world. I want to use my voice and I want to be that support for people that I, I really desperately needed and didn't know that I needed back then. So the emotional transformation occurred for you once you got to a, an age that you didn't think you'd get to. You survived this disease long enough to get to uh, your 30th birthday. And because you were able to survive and get to your 30th birthday, that was a benchmark for you that allowed the transformation for Sam to occur. Now, talk to us about how this changed you both professionally and personally, uh, because clearly you're a very empathetic person and you're working in the not-for-profit community, which seems to be sort of an offshoot of at least your initial educational pursuits. Now, talk to us about how you began to use social media platforms like uh, TikTok, Instagram, and then of course, starting a podcast. So talk to us first about your professional, um, um, the, the impact that the empathy had on your professional choices. Yeah, so it was actually kind of like a whole life-changing thing because in that same um, few month period that I was you know, in remission and finally feeling good, I, I actually started a job that I have now. Um, and I'm working every day with, with refugees that are coming with just horrific stories and they're, they're dealing with a lot of PTSD. Um, and I, I feel like I'm, I'm able to be a lot more empathetic to that after going through the experiences that I went through and that I'm able to, obviously we have very different stories, right? We have different situations, but, um, but a similar it, pattern of, of, of challenge and PTSD. Yeah, absolutely. Right. We, we definitely had that in common. And so, um, I'm able to use that in my appointments with my clients. I'm able to really um, give them the space that they need to share what they want to share or not share. Um, I'm able to kind of just see where they're coming from in a different way that I, I don't know that I would have ever seen before. 
So now let's talk about the outreach that you're doing through social media. Uh, why did you choose TikTok? And as Matt shared with you, we've become big fans of yours because of the brilliant use of that platform. But also talk to us about your, your podcast and the work you're doing there. So I got into uh, my whole life. I've always been the helper, right? I've always been the person that can get everything done. I'm the person that you come to when you need something. That's always been me. So I really struggled when I was sick and that I needed other people to help me. And that that was honestly mentally the worst part for me was that I, I wasn't different mentally. I still had the same goals. I still had, you know, the same ambitions for things. And um, I couldn't handle the fact that, that other people were doing things for me. Um, and I got into therapy, I think a little too late in the game. I think I should have gone um, a lot earlier, you know, even in that undiagnosed stage, I should have started going then just to, to have that support. Um, but going through therapy, I realized, you know, this is, it's good for me. It's healthy for me, but what I need to do is be helping other people, right? I need to get back to that foundation. I need to get back to that root of who I am to really heal from this. And, uh, so after I put out my story online, I started getting messages from people that I've known my entire life, right? People I haven't talked to since high school or even before that sharing their stories with me. And it was like, oh, wow. Like, you just don't know what the person next to you has been through or is going through. And um, that's what I wanted to, to build a platform for. And so, um, yes, my struggles have been with, with Lyme disease and with chronic illness, but um, there are so many different forms of trauma that I wanted to create a space for people to share their stories, um, for listeners to, to learn about these traumas, right? Learn about these things that they, they maybe didn't know about before, but also for listeners who are in a similar experience to be able to relate to somebody. Um, and one of the things that we do in the show is we have people talk about um, how should you approach somebody in this situation, right? How should you react to somebody in this situation? I mean, um, last week, my, the episode was a woman who, um, whose baby was stillborn and she posted pictures of her daughter, right? She and her husband were so proud of her, thought she was so beautiful. She was so perfect. And um, all she got were condolences. You know, we're so sorry. We're so sorry. And she didn't understand why people weren't saying, look at this beautiful human you made, right? Look how perfect she is. Look how gorgeous she is. And, um, and so she was able to share that in the episode. And so, you know, people now can listen to that and, and, and kind of empathize and, and say, oh, you know, if somebody I know goes through this, maybe I'll do this instead. And it's also a way, um, for people like me who are not ready to share their story, that if there's someone in a similar situation, they can send that person the episode and say, you know, this is kind of what I'm going through. Like, I want you to learn a little bit more about it without me having to put the energy into explaining and educating this to you. So Sam, what is the name of your podcast and where can our listeners find you and your podcast if they were interested in learning more about uh, your platform? So the podcast is called You Survived, Now What? Um, so we have our, our, list, or our, excuse me, our guests share their story, but then we do talk about the now what, right? What is, what does your life look like after trauma or through the trauma? Um, and you can find it everywhere. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. So Sam, we, we highly recommend to our listeners that they follow your podcast and listen to your podcast because we become huge fans. And we think it's really interesting about the way you're approaching your podcast as opposed to the way we have. We've taken a very narrow uh, approach to discussing Lyme and its challenges, and you've now taken a much broader approach. Talk to us about why you approach your podcast 
based on your experience differently than we approach ours? So I think the, the thing that I've learned really through my work and through connecting with, you know, my friends who have, who have their own stories is that we all have these similar experiences, right? All of our stories are different, but we all have faced some form of trauma, right? And one of the things I talk about in my show is the worst thing that happens to you is always going to be the worst thing that happens to you. It doesn't matter what happens to another person. And so um, the big part of what I want to do is to not grade trauma because, you know, people with Lyme disease, you know, right? If you had walked in and said, I, I have cancer or I have something else that people are really familiar with, that's like your grade A trauma, right? You walk in with, I have Lyme disease, that's like D or E, right? They don't know what that means. They don't understand. Um, and so I want this, this platform to be a space of saying every story matters, every experience matters. Um, it, it doesn't matter what happened to another person. So Sam, I'm going to ask you to narrow your focus, even though you're doing brilliant work with your podcast. And as I said, I strongly urge our listeners to follow you as well. But I'm going to ask you to narrow your focus. And the last question we want to ask you is, if God forbid your husband came walking into the room right after you finished his podcast and he showed you that he had tick biting him on his arm, what would you recommend that he do so he wouldn't have to go through the traumatic experience that you and so many of our followers have had to undergo? Yeah, I would immediately take him to my doctor, right? He's on antibiotics immediately. I don't care if a test is negative. I don't care if it's positive. Like he's, he's going on antibiotics immediately. And I've actually, I've, I've had, <clears throat> excuse me, not with him, but I, I can't tell you how many text messages I get every spring, every summer. I found this tick on my child. I found this tick on me. What should I do? Where should I go? And I always tell them, even if your doctor says no to those antibiotics, you find another doctor. Get, it doesn't matter. You get on those antibiotics, keep yourself safe. And um, I mean, for life, that's what we're going to do. And Sam, one other thing we're going to ask you to do is when people during this spring and summer call you and tell you they've been bitten by a tick, we're going to ask you to refer them to our tick bite blueprint that we have on our website so they can take all the steps they need to avoid the traumatic experience that people like you and Matt have taken. So Sam, thank you so much for taking the time out of your really busy life and your really busy schedule and all the wonderful things you're doing for this community and the, and the uh, community of people who are suffering from trauma. We were really blessed to interview you. And again, thank you very much for spending time with us on the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Sam McLaren Fahey and her Lyme disease journey, please visit her Instagram page at S6McLaren and subscribe to her podcast, You Survived, Now What? Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp Podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please know we would appreciate any input or improvements you would like to share and offer to us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review and rating on iTunes or our website. Thank you for listening.